Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Or if you're one that wants to take notes, and I highly suggest that you do, then uh, you're going to want to look at two passages today, John chapter 20, and you know that we're bringing it to a close when we get to 1 Peter chapter 1. But but let me kind of tell you where we're at in the grand scheme of things here. According to the most recent polls that I was able to find, 2023, they're anticipating that out of the 195 countries that currently make up the world, 95 of those countries will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in some kind of a sacred setting or a service today. And if we bring that closer to home to the United States, uh, following that kind of that same uh, ratio, about half of Americans say or said in one of the polls that they plan to attend an in-person Sunday morning service to celebrate. Now listen, here's the part where we, we need to wake up a little bit to celebrate the most incredible the most world-shaking and life-changing event that quite literally has ever taken place in the history of mankind. Never anything like this before. In fact, this is so amazing that when you begin to understand, like Pastor Spencer said, not just what happened way back there, but what that means for our life today and the potential of what that means for our life in the next life for all of eternity, there's no way that you should be able to come to an Easter celebration and not be radically moved. I mean, it should shake your thinking. It, it should cause you to begin to re-examine kind of your life flashing before your eyes, not that you're going to you know, leave this earth, but that you're re-evaluating your priorities. What is this all about? How am I living? What is this? What is this really going to happen? And let me tell you why. Because the Easter story is the fact that Jesus Christ, who was legitimately the Son of God and who had never sinned before, took the place of every single one of us who repeatedly sin. Like we can't stop, right? We're constantly making mistakes and constantly saying, I promise I'll never do it again. And then we do it again. And so repeatedly sin. And he did that by dying a horrific death to pay for the penalty of our sin before this holy God. And then he was brought back to life by the supernatural power of God. And here's the greatest news. He's still alive. And he promised us he's coming back one day very, very soon. Now, I want to say that last part again because I, I think we get this little, little bit of a distorted idea of what that means. When, when I say that Jesus died, but he's still alive, uh, then we kind of tend to think, well, yeah, he, he's alive in heaven, kind of like grandpa is no longer with us, and he's alive in heaven because grandpa died and now he's in heaven. But you're missing the power of the resurrection. That's not what the Bible teaches. Easter is the fact that Jesus died and came back to life here on earth. And then he decided, and then when it was time, then he ascended and went to heaven as someone who had come back to, to, earth, to, to come back to life here on earth. And then he went to heaven like that and promised, by the way, I'm going to be gone for a little bit, building a place so we can all live together, but I will come back one day. 
and I've left you a whole bunch of cues and clues that will tell you we're getting closer and closer and closer to that day. And the reason you need to understand that, because the resurrection is not just about Jesus who died, but then, you know, somehow made it into heaven and we get to join him there one day like this big family reunion. The resurrection is the fact that Jesus, in coming back to life here, conquered the worst consequence that sin brought, and that is death. The thing we're all afraid of. The thing that we're all trying to beat the clock with our bucket lists and our accomplishments and making sure that, you know, we're getting the, the things that we want to get done and we're supposed to get done and, and the time is ticking, you know, and the older you get, the more you realize the time is running out and we feel all that because of this thing called death. But the Bible says, nope, Jesus conquered that and said, you're not racing the clock anymore. In fact, when you accept Jesus, you won't live forever here, but you'll live forever. You don't have to worry about a bucket list because whatever you don't finish here, you get to pick up in the next life, only you get to do it in a perfect environment, in a brand new earth, and everything is supersized there. So there's no such thing as pressure. There's no such thing as defeat and discouragement here because Jesus brought that victorious, I'm the Savior who conquered death, and he said, and I want to come and be part of your life so I can help you be victorious in every single area of life so that you can live the life that God plans you to live and you don't have to settle for anything less. You don't have to live in the middle of discouragement and consequence of sin. You don't have to feel like that your dreams are dying every day because Jesus came to resurrect all of that. And that's, what's, that's what the resurrection power is about. It's about a living Savior who wants to, in, in real time, bring our lives back to full blossom in life so you can be and experience everything he has for you. Listen to me, that's not a fairy tale. That's not an embellishment on some religious story that happened long time ago. This is real, like real time in our life today. And let me kind of give you another part of this that some of you are gonna be like, what? Listen to me, this is real and every logical, rational person knows it. It's not just some religious, spiritual crutch or some feeling for the emotional weak. Every rational, logical person knows this is true. In fact, even the Gallup polls say 84% of non-church people know that the resurrection is true. Now, they may not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They may not buy into the fact that this has a, a, an incredible eternal consequence and a significant to it, but nobody that's rational and that, that is logical is arguing about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. You say, why is that true? Let me tell you why. Because just like his birth and his death, the resurrection wasn't a secret. It wasn't just a rumor. It wasn't just things that, you know, people that loved him the most were trying to keep his memory alive as best they could. So they just kind of, you know, talked to him like he was in the here and now. None of that was true. In fact, let me give you four logical, rational reasons that you can go look up, Google, research yourself, do a little bit of study, read books, and understand. Everybody knows this is true. Here's number one, because the resurrection is both biblically and historically documented. And I know what some of you are thinking, and right away you're like, okay, gotcha, 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 because I don't know if this whole Bible thing is actually true. I mean, some parts are good, don't get me wrong, and there's good principles in there, but this Bible was written by people, was written by men. How can it be the Word of God? 
And let me just say to you, while you may not accept the Bible's message, listen to me, if you're a rational, logical person and you do your homework, you really should believe the Bible. If for no other reason, it will take you more faith to not believe the Bible than to just recognize the legitimacy, the literal accuracy of the Word of God and accept it at least as the most pristine piece of literature ever known to mankind. Let me give you a few reasons why. Number one, because the Bible is not just one book, it's a collection of 66 different books. And these were written in three different original languages. And they were written by 40 different authors that spanned three different continents over 1,500 years. Since that time, it's been corroborated by 23,000 archaeological digs. Not one of them even remotely disputed what the Bible says. Not only that, number two, because the Bible was written by eyewitnesses, and it was written during the lifetime and because of the interviews of other eyewitnesses. That's called evidenti evidentiary substance. And, and when you start looking at that, you realize many of, the, of, those, of, those, uh, of those instances included specific names and places and descriptions, and most of those are not only biblically but historically verified. Oh no, that's exactly what happened. But let's keep going. Number three, because the Bible reports supernatural events, including healings and miracles, many, uh, again, that are verified through historical documents that cannot be explained through natural or man-made solutions. Any way you look at it, it happened, and we don't know how from a man-made perspective. But here's the final one, because the Bible records the fulfillment of very specific prophecies that in some cases were given thousands of years prior to their fulfillment, and yet they happened exactly the way they were supposed to, and they were recorded not just biblically, but historically. And when you look at that from a logical, rational point of view, listen, it's not just statistically, it's humanly impossible. And yet the Bible pulls all that off. Now again, listen to me, you may not accept the Bible's message. You may have watered it down to some just religious experience, but listen to me, it takes more faith to not believe the Bible's true than it does to at least acknowledge its historic and literary accuracy. But that's not even the big question, right? The big question is, why is it that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this stuff? Why is half the world still celebrating it? Why are we getting together and we're singing about it and we're opening the pages of this phenomenal uh, content? Why are we looking at that still? And the answer has to do with some outrageous claims that the Bible made, starting in the Old Testament, but then fulfilled in this man named Jesus in the New Testament. Let me just give you two of the ones that are significant out of a very long list. Here's the first one. We can find it capsulized in John chapter 14, the back half of verse 6, where Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody can come to the Father except through me. Now, let me just highlight that in the culture we're in today so you don't miss what Jesus said. He didn't say, I'm a way. He didn't say, I'm a truth. He didn't say, I'm your truth. I'm my truth. He said, I'm the one and the only truth that's going to get you back to the Father. And when he said, get you back to the Father, he wasn't just talking about so that one day you don't go to the bad place, you can go to the good place, and you'll live with, with God, who's the Father of everyone. No, no. He said, I'm the only way for you to get back into a relationship with your Creator so that you can live right here 
the life that God intended you to live with supernatural divine encouragement and wisdom and insight and, and power and resource and all of those things you need to get through a life, uh, to a world, through a world that's been impacted with the consequences and the twistedness of sin, he says, I'm the only way, the only approach that's gonna get you back in a relationship with God the Father to give you access to all of those things so you can live life to the fullest potential, he said, it's only gonna come through me. That's the first reason. But let me give you the second reason, and it's a little more tightly related to Easter, uh, and we find that in John chapter two, where Jesus walks into the temple one day, and he's like, what is going on? This is supposed to be a house where people can come and can sense the moving and the presence of God, and so Jesus comes completely disrupts the normal religious flow of the temple and the religious leaders are incensed. And they look at Jesus and said, what gives you the right to do this? And Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, Jesus said, oh, let me introduce myself. I'm God's son. And they said, prove it. And he said, yeah, I will. Because not long from now, you're going to kill me. But in three days, I'm going to come back to life right here. And listen to me, he did it exactly the way that, that he promised he would, which proves beyond any evidentiary doubt that Jesus is who he claimed he was. That Jesus had the power to do what he claimed to do and that Jesus would in fact fulfill the promises that he made, which by the way is not just me creating and patching things together. That's exactly what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Listen to this. He said, to whom he, that's Jesus also, presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Now, we're not going to go into a study, but that, that, that phrase, infallible proves, that again, that's one of those legal evidentiary terms, and it's talking about he, he proved himself with many obvious and inarguable and indisputable evidences. It, it wasn't just like, you know, I, I thought I saw something or I had a dream or, or there was a stain on the wall or something, and no, 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 Jesus said, no, I proved it over and over and over as if I were in a court of law. I brought evidences that were indisputable, and this is one of the ways he said being seen by them during 40 days. When you look at that word being, being seen, this is an important one for the morning. We're going to kind of build on it. It comes from a derivative of this Greek word horao. And this particular word is not just you catch a glimpse of something or, or you know, you get to, you're like watching a movie and you have an experience in the moment. This is talking about to take an extensive and scrutinizing look at something in order to understand and determine for yourself whether there's veracity there, whether there's truth there, whether it is what it claims to be. And that's why he said, listen, I, I demonstrated myself in these inarguable evidences, but one of them is I was seen not glanced at, not momentarily. I was scrutinized with people's eyeballs. And he said, and I was, I was on full display for 40 days. And for 40 days for over a month, he said, they, they listened to me, they talked with me, they touched me, they hugged me. We, you know, we, we, we talked about, and he said, he went on, he said, and I was speaking of things that were pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
And so listen, you, you can't be a rational, logical person realizing that this was biblically and historically documented, that it was written because of eyewitnesses who were interviewing other eyewitnesses, also historically documented, that it, 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 for, uh, it fulfilled very specific, detailed prophecy that had been given thousands of years before, which is humanly and statistically impossible, and the fact that th- this was something that was being experienced by these particular people. Listen, there's so much evidence being piled up. You have to wonder from a rational, logical point of view, how is it possible that people will will look at the resurrection and will not be able to grasp the reality and the gravity of what Jesus pulled off? In fact, let me kind of bring it closer to home. And I I know I might be preaching to the choir, so give me a little bit of flex here. Why is it that some people or some Christians are able to participate in Easter celebrations around the world year after year with the same level of faith and conviction that's slightly above the Easter bunny? Or, or, or maybe just right there in par, you know, with the tooth fairy or with Santa Claus. It's just kind of part of the whole celebration, right? But it's not the main focus. And here's where we're going to get to the meat of what we want to talk about today. The answer is questions. Questions, questions. We've got lots of questions. Lots of questions. And they range all the way from absolute doubts, like, ah, I can't believe that. There, there's no way that's true. All the way to just being content to live in the shallow end of the knowledge pool. Right? Well, this is just how I always grew up, and I don't know, we just, every every so we just get all dressed up, and we just go to church, and then we come back, and we have Sunday lunch, and open the Easter baskets, and do the Easter egg hunt, and we just don't think. We're not understanding. We, we kind of embrace the, the weightiness and the consequence. There's an eternal eternity that hangs in the balance here, but not just eternity. It's how we live life here. If you care at all about the quality of your life. If you care at all about the things that are in your heart that you feel are good things and moral things that need to be accomplished, if you care at all about the family that you're living around and the legacy you're going to leave to the next generation, if you care at all about that, we should be thinking about this because Jesus came to bring us all of those solutions. Now that's why I ask you to turn to John chapter 20. Because John chapter 20 is going to give us a picture, going to zone in on a guy that we know to be one way, and yet that's not really the way that he was. We just get one little snapshot in one little very confusing, distressing time in his life, and we kind of use that as a pattern and say, well, you know, everybody's like that. Well, no, he wasn't even like that longer than just about a week. But let me kind of give you some background because you have to get the gravity of what was going on. By the time we get to John chapter 20, Jesus is dead and he's been in the grave for a couple of days, which by the way has been the longest 48 to 72 hours that any of his followers have ever experienced, especially those 11 closest disciples that when we get to John 20 are huddled together in this un undisclosed safe house because they are afraid for their life that the same group that killed Jesus is going to do it to them. And so they're huddled together, man, curtains drawn, nobody, lights are off, you know, and, and they're just like wandering around like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, we didn't expect we'd be in this predicament. And which is really hard to believe when you rewind the clock and realize it was just a week earlier that they're walking beside Jesus in this citywide parade 
and people are celebrating him. This is the guy. This is the Messiah we've been waiting for forever. He's here to save us. And it looked like everything was on this upward trajectory. Life is going to go just like we knew that it should and we knew that it would. And all of a sudden they woke up one morning and it all came crashing down. Jesus is betrayed, and then he's arrested, and then he's indicted on false charges, and then he's found guilty and sentenced to death, not by Roman justice, by the way, which is what was, or, what, the, the, which was the pathway this was all going down, but by the whims of a fickle mob that was being manipulated by corrupt leaders. And so their heads are spinning like, what just happened? How are any of us safe if they can do this to Jesus who a week ago was the hero of the city, then they can do this to any of us. So here they are. They're hiding for their lives. They haven't slept. They haven't ate in days when suddenly they are startled like adrenaline rush, heart pounding because there's a, there's a knock, a hard knock at the door and they peek out of the cracks and it's Mary Magdalene who was one of their loyal followers, but she's out of breath and she's out of sorts. Let me in, let me in, let me in, let me in. They're like, what's going on? And so they open the door real quickly and she steps in and she bursts the news. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. That's John chapter 20, verse two. Well, out of a sheer, just reactive response, Peter and John leave the safe house and they take off running as fast as they can to the tomb. And when they get there, they go right inside and they find the grave clothes that Jesus was wrapped in, laying there, neatly folded and right there in place where the body used to be. And that's when it began to dawn on them. Wait a minute. Is that what he was talking about? Is it possible that Jesus really came back to life? I mean, when does that happen? How can that happen? That, that just doesn't happen, right? How in the world can that happen? And so stunned and confused and maybe a little bit hopeful, but ah, we don't know yet. We don't wanna, we don't wanna you know, get, get our hopes up too, too wide. They go back to the safe house and they're explaining to the others exactly what they saw, but they didn't realize that Mary had followed them back to the tomb and she stayed there by the grave. Again, she's distraught. She's beside herself. She's weeping and crying like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do to do when suddenly Jesus appears to her and he says yep it's me I'm alive and after a little short exchange he tells her hey this is what I want you to do I know you just left the disciples place but I want you to go back there again and not just tell them that I'm missing but tell them you saw me Tell him that I really am alive, I'm here. So, so she gets back to the safe house and Peter and John are talking a mile a minute with all kinds of questions. You know, I'm telling you, man, it really is empty. Just like Mary said, I don't know, I can't explain it. We thought maybe, maybe he did come back to life, but that's crazy. How do we even think about that? When all of a sudden the door burst open and it's Mary with an update. I saw him. What? No, no, seriously, he talked to me. No, I'm not kidding you, man. I looked at him with my own eyes. Jesus really is alive. That's verse number 18. Let me kind of quickly paraphrase verse 19 and we're gonna, we'll jump in here. So Mary, I, we don't know how long she was there. We don't, can't even imagine the discussion and all the questions and they're like, what? You know, and, and people walking around. I gotta sit down, man. I don't even know. I haven't slept for three days. Is this sleep deprivation? What? I can't think straight. What's going on? But finally Mary leaves and the disciples lock the door because now fear really sets in. Whatever, whoever stole his body, you know the religious leaders are going to blame us. And they are in a panic. And right at the time when they're in this fever, the Bible says in verse, in verse 19, Jesus shows up. 
right in the middle of him, he just appears and he says, peace be with you. I guess so. What if that was your dead relative? Right? You just went to their funeral three days ago and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm just, I'm just heartbroken because they're gone. And all of a sudden, there they are. Uh, peace be with you, he said. And listen to me, it says, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. And when they saw that, when they examined it, when they realized this is not a figment of our imagination, this is not just a dream, this is not just a religious out-of-body experiences, this is legit. We can touch him. We, we, can, we can feel it. We can see the scars. It said they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. That's that word haraho. It wasn't a momentary glance. It wasn't a, hey, look, do you guys see what I'm seeing? And rubbing my eyes. And No, Jesus stepped right in the middle of them and said, hey, whoa, 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 settle down. For, settle down. He said, it's me. And he's saying, look, look. And we don't know how long the conversation was, but we know it was long enough for them to examine and to scrutinize like undisputable evidence to say, well, no, that, that's him. We spent three years with him and we can touch him and we can see where he was all messed up from the crucifixion. We know this is legitimately him. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in verse number 24, right? So very dramatic, right? It's been a crazy adrenaline rush and low points of discouragement and, and depression and fear. And, but here we are in verse number 24. It says, now one of the 12 uh, disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, that's something you probably didn't know, was, was not with the others when Jesus came. Verse 25, so at some point, we don't know how long, at some point they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, well, that's great. But I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. And some of us look at that and say, wow, this guy's got a real faith problem. Are you kidding me? No, no. He was just rehearsing in detail what they got to do. They said, we saw the Lord. We horahoed. We got to scrutinize and examine close up and handle the evidence. We're absolutely convinced it was him. And he said, well, that's great for you guys, but I'm not going to buy into that until I get to do that. Until I'm absolutely convinced. And, and so he goes on and he, and he says, he, he says, I'm not going to believe. In fact, that whole word, horaho, not just carries the idea of being able to scrutinize and to determine veracity, but it also carries this giant emotion or this big conclusion behind it that once you've examined and you've determined veracity, that you can then put something to rest. You can be convinced with a level of confidence that would immediately assimilate itself into your life. In other words, you could be a skeptic five minutes ago, but now that I've examined the evidence, now that I've touched it, now that I've experienced it, now that I know the legitimacy of it, I won't ever question it again. No, he's alive. He's absolutely alive. And so this was legitimate what he was saying. That's why he said, listen, that's great for you guys. I'm glad you're convinced. I'm glad you had that opportunity, but I'm not going to believe. I'm not stepping into that until I've had the same opportunity. In fact, the word believe here comes from a Greek word pisteo, and it's where we get translated many other places in the New Testament, the word faith. It's not just a trust in your heart. It's a level of confidence internally that comes that enables you to aggressively 
to assertively, no turning back, to believe in something or someone and, and take that with you as you're journeying through life. Well, I don't know a lot of stuff, but here's one thing I know that I know that I know and I'll never doubt it again. That's what this word believe means. Now listen to me. Take all of that, what's just, just, just happened, and given the, dr- the dramatic circumstances and, and, and the impossibility of what they're looking at, it's reasonable for Thomas to have some doubt. It's reasonable for him to say, yeah, I get that, and I'm not saying you guys are lying or anything, but until I get to examine it, this thing's too big. This thing's way too impossible. I will not be able to step in with a confidence of faith and trust and move forward with that being a settled issue for the rest of my life until I get to have the same opportunity to examine the evidence. That's that's reasonable, especially, by the way, if, if you're understanding that this was out of characteristic for Thomas. In fact, let me just give you a short list. When, when we look at the Gospels, and we look at not only the Gospels, but history, and how it records Thomas, we find out, number one, in Luke 6, Thomas was one of the 12 that was chosen out of this really large group of disciples, not called from the seashore like Peter and Andrew and John, but he was chosen out of a larger group of disciples as being one of the ones that, that Jesus could see the most potential and the most devotion, and the Heavenly Father said, yeah, pick him, and so he was chosen to be a disciple of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 3, Thomas uh, is one of the disciples that's authorized and sent out to go and preach and teach the gospel, including casting out demons and performing healings in the name of the Lord. And he, he comes back and he's also one of the ones that's congratulated because he did it successfully. Stepped out in faith. Say, hey, this is what Jesus did. We're going to do it too. In John chapter 11, we find that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And some of the people are so thrown off, they're talking about killing Jesus. And Thomas is the one that steps up and said, I'll die with you. And tells the other disciples, come on, what are you waiting for? Come on, this guy's for real. We're, we're in. We're, we're all in now. We're going to go in. Not only that, but a few chapters later in John chapter 14, verse 5, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's getting ready to leave and he's going to go to the Father's house and they can't come with him. And Thomas is the one who speaks up and says, whoa, 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 at least leave us a map. At least leave us the GPS coordinated because listen, we're coming. We're not leaving without you. We will find our way there. And if you got to go and leave us behind, at least leave us the map. In Acts chapter 1 verse 13, we find out that Thomas is listed among those who in obedience was in the upper room waiting on the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was one that received the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and, and, and proclaiming all of the wonderful works of the Lord. And that's where Christian history picks up. And we find out that Thomas is one of the first ones who took the gospel outside of the Roman Empire traveling as far as India and preaching and teaching and casting out demons and and healing and doing all those things that he'd done before. And he did that for his entire life until he was martyred for his bestial, for his faith, for his belief that was established way back there when he said, I'll never, never doubt you again. And he didn't. And even today in India, believers in India still recognize Thomas as the patron saint who brought them the gospel. But listen to me, that's not what most of us remember Thomas for. Whenever this disciple's made up, we, uh, we remember him for that one confusing, super scary moment in his life. And that's why we all know him as, come on, say it together, doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. 
And you say, well, why is that important? Let me tell you why. Because every single one of us are going to get in areas, we're going to get in situations, we're going to get in seasons of life where we've got questions. And they're not simple ones. They're weighty ones. They're ones that if we can't depend on this answer, we're going to be in serious trouble. And we're going to find ourselves doubting God's truth. But listen to me, the key is you don't get stuck. You don't stay in the shallow end of the pool. You don't just stay there, well, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. You do exactly what Thomas did, and you begin to bring your questions to the Lord. You don't let your character, you don't let your mind be be cluttered by, you don't let those things, you keep moving forward, because you're about to see that Jesus does not mind questions. He's not thrown off by your doubts. He's not thrown off by your unbelief. He gets the circumstances and how confusing and challenging they can be, how at times impossible they look. He's not thrown off by any of that. In fact, you're actually going to see that if you'll turn to him with your questions in the middle of your crisis, Jesus will show up and he'll say, let me prove it to you. Let let me give you the evidence so you can examine it for yourself so you don't have to stay in this state of fear and anxiety and hoping for the best and confusion, but you can begin to walk in a confidence that a living Christ is right here with you and will do what he promised he would do because he is who he says he is and he has the power he claims to have. And he says, watch what I'll do. Now, we're coming back to the story, right? So Thomas says, listen, I realize that you you guys are, you know, that you guys have saw him and you're totally believing, but I got questions. I got a lot of, there's so much going in me. I can't wrap my head around that. And he didn't say, I won't believe. He said, I won't believe until I can see it. I won't believe until it's demonstrated to me. And again, we see Jesus not offended. In fact, in just a minute or two, as we read the story, you're going to find out Jesus actually commends him for it. Jesus said, you've taken a great approach. You didn't harden your heart. You leaned in, ah, shaking knees and, and you know, head filled with confusion, but you leaned in. And Jesus is going to commend him for it. I'm in verse 26 of John chapter 20. So eight days later, this is a full week, right? Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. And watch what happened. The doors were locked again, and suddenly, just like before, Jesus was standing among them, and he said the same thing. Peace with me. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Other translations say, reach out with your finger. In the southern translation, we say, boy, get your hands out of your pockets. Okay, lean into this. Okay, stop leaning back like, ah, I don't know, I don't know. Get your hands out of your pockets and get over here. And he says, and look at my hands. Now, this is a very different word. The other one is, unless I believe, I can't see, but we've seen and we know it's him. And he showed himself and all those words are hurao, opportunity to scrutinize, to examine the evidence, to make your own decision. But he said, get your hands out of your pockets and get over here. And he said, I want you to look. This is the Greek word, ido. And it literally talks about looking with an amazement. And in fact, the translators say this is really hard to translate because it carries more emotion than it does like actual description of movement. 
And so lots of times in the New Testament, this is translated behold. And it really means wowie, 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 wowie. Like come over here and open your eyes and prepare to be amazed. Prepare to have your mind blown. He says, come over here and look. And he said, and put your finger, put your finger here and look at my hands. And what you notice, he goes on and he says, go ahead, put your hand into the wound of my side. Now that word put there is interesting too because it comes from a word, uh, a Greek word, balo, and it means to thrust. In other words, he's saying, don't worry, you're not going to hurt me. You don't have to be delicate. You don't have to tiptoe around stuff. Just shove your hand all the way in there up to the elbow if you want to. Get into the thick of it. Don't worry about God and God's word being fragile and, well, I got to be respectful. Just shove, just get right in there. And so he says, thrust your hand into my side. And notice what he says. He says, don't be faithless any longer. And that's a really great phrase in the Greek that was so exacting to them because it meant thrust your hand in my side, put it in there all the way up to the elbow if you want to, but let this be the defining factor so that you're not anymore ever again questioning. You can settle this once and for all in your life. Is this real or is it not real? And I want you to notice what, the, what he said next. He said, and once you've got it settled, he said, believe. And again, that's that word pisteo. It means put all of your eggs in this basket and settle this in your heart with a confidence. Nope, Jesus is real. This whole stuff is real. And I'm not going to question that reality anymore. The rest of my life is now is going to be leaning forward, believing and banking on the fact that he is who he says he is, that he has the power that he says he has, and he'll do what he promised he would do. That's what I'm concluding. And I'm going to live based on that for the rest of my life. And that's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to be delicate. I'm not worried about your questions. I'm not worried about your doubts, but come on. Come closer. Take your hands out of your pockets. Quit, quit dilly-dallying around with this. Lean in and make a decision because this is serious. This is the consequences of literally your whole life, not just the afterlife, but right now. And what will happen for generations to come is based on you being able to grab an active, no turning back. I don't have to live in fear and anxiety and wondering anymore because Jesus really rose from the dead here. He's alive. He's who he says he is. He has the power he says he has, and he will do what he promised he would do every single time. And I want you to notice what Thomas's response was. He says, my Lord and my God. We don't even know whether he actually touched him. We don't know whether he took Jesus up on him, stuck his finger in there, whether he thrust his hand into his side. The, the, the implication is that wasn't necessary anymore. He didn't need to dig into all of those details. The fact that he was given opportunity and he could see the evidence in front of him, that's all he needed. And then Jesus commends him and encourages him to keep moving forward. Then Jesus said to him, listen, you believe, pisteo, you settled the issue because you have seen me, because you've examined the evidence. He said, but there's a greater blessing. And the greater blessing happens from this point on for the rest of your life, and that is those who can believe and settle issues in all these different areas of life, even though they don't see it. But if you don't get that first one down, if you don't accept and believe this is real, and Jesus is who he says he is, and logically, rationally, the Bible, and history, and prophecies, and, and testimonies, all of them are pointing to the same direction. No, there's no question mark here. Whether you want to accept it or not, this is absolutely the real deal. Once you settle that, 
then he says, you don't need to wrestle that through every single time. You don't need to every challenge. Well, I didn't think he's got to help me. He's got to help me. Do you think God really will do it? Well, you, you already settled that. No, he said he would. He promised. Now it turns and now I'm like, okay, Lord, help me, direct me. Show me how you're going to help me. Show me what I need to do to adjust. Teach me, shape my life, move in me and and direct my course so that I can be everything that you're supposed to be. Jesus is saying the real blessing is once you're established in the truth of the death and the and the uh, of the the death and the 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 resurrection of Jesus Christ, then from that point on, you don't have to live in doubt anymore. You've settled the issue. And you can say, now I can live in a confidence that Jesus, who he says he is, and not wrestle every situation individually, even if I get into a place where the amazing experience, the wow factor wasn't there, and the evidence that, I, that I'd like to be, to be on, 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 on display so I could examine every detail, what if that's not there? It doesn't matter. I can still move forward in faith. And the reason we know that, because that's what Peter, who, by the way, was standing right there when Thomas heard this, When Thomas walked through this and Jesus commended him, he was standing right there. 30 years later, Jesus writes, or Peter writes a letter to commend the saints that had fled from persecution. And they're scattered all over southwestern Asia. And they're suffering terribly, living as refugees. And he writes them a letter. And here's what he says to them. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you love him, that's Jesus. And the word love there is the word agapo, which means you have this unreserved, undying, no turning back devotion to him. Listen, even though you have never seen him. And that's the word idol. Even though you've never had this wow, amazing experience ever since you accepted Jesus, you've been under the gun. You were threatened. You were in persecution. You had to flee for your life. This hasn't been one of those, wow, this is awesome. It's so fun. I can't wait to get to church again. It was never been that experience for you. You're literally giving everything up and running for your life. He says, even though you've never seen him and though you do not see him now. In other words, even though right now you don't have any evidence in your life that God even cares. You're praying and it feels like they're hitting the ceiling. Feels like nothing's moving. You don't have any evidence in your life that God's going to do anything at all. He says, and yet you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious and inexpressible joy. He said, here's what I see about you. Even though you're in the toughest situation, you've got no, nothing to look forward to. You've got no evidence you can examine. He said, and yet you settled the issue way back there. Jesus was real. And so because of that, you have this ironclad confidence in you that every day gets you up and fills hope back up and fills faith back up that the same God who did it then will do it for me and will keep this moving. I don't know how and I don't know when and I don't know through what avenue, but I know that he is who he says he is, that he has the power he says he can have and he'll do what he says he can do. And because of that, even though you don't have any experience to look forward to and life is challenging you without any evidence that God cares at all, he says, something's going on and you're filling up with this inexpressible joy. Something's going on. You get up every morning and say, well, this could be the days God's going to do a good thing. God's going to do a wonderful thing. It hasn't dented you. And this is what he was trying to say to Thomas. And let me bring this thing to a close. Because I know some of you, you're either thinking it right now or the testimony of your life has been, yeah, but pastor, but I just feel, stop. 
Because let, let me just, you know, playfully for a minute say, yeah, that's a great approach. Because feelings always tell you the truth. Right? You always feel like getting up every morning and going to work. You always feel like eating the things you're supposed to eat. You always feel like doing the things you're supposed to do. You always feel like honoring your commitments and honoring your words. Oh yeah, go with the feelings approach because that's super reliable. Right? Some of the rest of you are like, well, you know, it's not really that. But I was just raised to believe, stop. Let me kind of sarcastically champion that for a minute because in spite of the increase of available information and innovation and opportunity and development, especially as we've had the word of God develop for us, listen to me, by all means, don't think for yourself, just follow the crowd. By all means, just do the same thing that everybody's done all along and look and see that you get the same results that they get. Yeah, that always works really well. But here's my favorite one is when I encounter people and they say, you know what, Pastor Doe, but I've tried that faith thing and it didn't work for me. And respectfully, what I want to say to them and every once in a while I can is, well, based on the way you just said that, I don't think you've ever tried that faith thing. I think you've tried the religious thing. I think you've tried the experiential thing. You were in a great meeting and man, God was in the house and you're like, ooh, this is it. My life's going to be changed forever. And then it didn't sustain. Or you went to church all of your life, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, just religiously, and you didn't experience any of this. Or somebody told you, well, you just have to have faith. Like it's some blind leap into the unknown and you're just kind of crossing your fingers as you're dropping to the bottom, hoping this is going to turn out good. But listen to me, none of those things are this faith thing. Even secular dictionaries define faith this way as a confident trust in someone or something, which means that faith is a rational, logical, evidence-based conclusion that always, you always arrive at after careful consideration. And that's why when somebody says, yeah, but I've tried that faith thing and it just doesn't work, listen to me, I'll conclude, no, I, I don't think you have. Because if you've tried the faith thing, and you've really examined, scrutinized the evidence. You say, what evidence? Uh, biblical and historical documentation that can't be and isn't refuted. Specific, very detailed prophecies talking about what Jesus would come and fulfill and the opportunities we would get that were fulfilled to the detail even though they were given thousands of years earlier. How about testimonies of people that were interviewing other people who lived in it for real? You don't have to stop there. You have testimonies all around you. Of people right now that can tell you example after example after example after example how God came through for them, looked like they were, they were going to crash and burn. We'll never get out of this. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, I got that. I can do that for you. This is all over the place. But let me give you one more because you've experienced it. And you can't deny it right? You may not have recognized it. Maybe you're like Nicodemus and the Holy Spirit's dealing with you. He's blowing across rush your heart. He's trying to convince you, come on, stop procrastinating. Come on, come on. You use your head, not just your feelings. Stop holding back. Stop giving all these excuses. Well, I don't know if I just feel it. Well, that's not what everybody told me. Well, well, I've tried that before. Stop, stop with that. Examine it yourself. Get gritty with it if you have to. Get your elbows in there. Plug around. God won't be offended. He's not delicate. But prove to yourself, allow the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to prove to you this is real. And it works just the way that, that Jesus said it would. 
Because if you'll do that, then here's what I'm confident about. You're going to come out to the same conclusion that millions and billions of other Christians throughout the history of mankind have come to, listen to me, faith is the only thing that works. Every single time. Because Jesus is the only one that doesn't change. He's the same yesterday as he is today, and he'll be the same tomorrow when you wake up. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his word. There's no variance. There's no vacillation. He is who he says he is. He has the power he says he has. He'll do what he promised he would do every single time. Listen, maybe not how you thought. Maybe not when you would like. Maybe not in the way you would prefer. But as sure as Jesus was standing there in front of Thomas and say, come on, test me. Jesus will step into your crisis and say, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. Well, is he going to let me touch him? No, 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 no. He doesn't need to. See, we have an advantage that Thomas didn't have. I know you might be thinking, yeah, well, if I was there and I could do that, then I would believe too. We have advantages they didn't dream of. Again, we've got 2,000 years of validated, verified, indisputable documentation. We've got, I don't know how many examples of witnesses. We've got prophecies that were fulfilled that they were scratching their head. They didn't even, they didn't even understand, but they're, they're, in, they're fulfilled in, in, in full display for us. And we have testimonies of people back then and living today. And you're one of those testimonies too, even if you haven't bought in. Because you know Jesus is alive. Because there's times in your life where, man, you know he's talking to your heart. You might have even said that, yeah, I know. God's been talking to me. What do you mean by that? Oh, stop. Don't play with that. That's not a feeling. That's a legitimate thing. He's moving, trying to get you because he wants you to step into this. And so the question is, are you willing to come and see? Are you willing to step in and see, to verify, to testify? Not based on a feeling or experience, but, but lean in and follow Jesus. Meet him there and say, okay, then I'm going to start to wrestle with this. Which brings us to the closing moment of today's service. And here's the closing moment. I don't have any doubts that God's been talking to every one of us all throughout the service. He may have hit you during the worship. He may have hit you somewhere else, but I can promise you that he's been, he's been talking to you. You felt him tug at your heart. You felt the lump in your throat. You brushed a tear away from your eyes. Some of you are trying to hold that stuff down. I don't, don't buy into all this, but I'm going to tell you something. Jesus is real and he's in the house today and he's talking to every single one of us. Some of us, he's talking to us about being saved for the first time. Some he's talking to us about coming down, coming back with a new level of commitment and coming back to the Lord and reestablishing that salvation for the first time in a long time. And so here's how we're going to end. This will only take us a few minutes. I'm going to say a really short prayer for all of us, asking the Holy Spirit to help us. And then with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask all of us to repeat this prayer after us. And if you're here this morning and the Lord's been talking to your heart, again, salvation, rededication, maybe some other area, I want you to say this prayer right along with us. And I want you to believe that Jesus is going to meet you here because he really will. And then we're going to wrap it up in a celebration. All right, close your eyes and bow your head. Let me pray for you real quick. Holy Spirit, thank you for speaking to every single person in the house today. You said that when the word of God went out, that it would speak a message that would confirm itself in our heart and would bring miraculous, wonderful things to our life. And so in Jesus' name, I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, quiet down, even cancel out anything that would cause us to be held back in our questions or our doubts or, or our emotions or whatever it is, just, just release us from that today. And instead, give everybody the clarity and the courage to respond to Jesus Christ, to receive him in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Okay, every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here this morning again, and especially if you want to receive him for the first time or the first time in a long time, I want you to pray this prayer after me. In fact, let's everybody pray it together, even if you're already saved as a memorial and a restirring of the fact when you gave your life to Christ. Everybody say this. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for not giving up on me. Even when I was confused and I ignored you and I did things my own way. I really do believe that you died on the cross in my place. That you defeated consequences of sin and of death when you rose again three days later. I really do believe that you're alive and that you're the Lord over all. And I need you in my life. I accept your gift of salvation today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, get your eyes up here. Look at me real quick. If you prayed that prayer with all of your heart, then the Bible says you're saved. Some of you prayed it for the first time in a long time. Listen, the Bible says you're, you're clean. You're forgiven, right? A line's been drawn. You're not doubting whatever your name is anymore. Now you're someone who gets to step forward in a confidence, in a growing confidence that Jesus is who he says he is and he'll do for you exactly what he said he would do. And listen to me, the Bible says when that happens, when when a sinner comes for the first time or comes for the first time in a long time or or we come and we, we step to a new level, it says that all of heaven just throws a party and is celebrating. That's legit. That's real. No, that's real, right? And so listen, so... We want to join in that party. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to be like Thomas, and I'm going to ask you to be courageous for one moment. Don't be embarrassed because you're, you're surrounded by people who have fully bought in. But be courageous like, but like Thomas. And if you made it one of those decisions today, then I want you to put your hand up in just a moment because we want to begin to celebrate and we, we're so with you that we actually have a gift we want to give you that will help you to start thinking and keep moving forward in these next steps. So if you're here this morning, you accepted Jesus for the first time or the first time in a long time with no hesitation, let me see your hand, just lift them up right now. Yep, thank you, right there, right there. Somebody else? Come on, somebody else. Don't be embarrassed. Anybody else? Anybody in the balcony? Come on, this is your moment. God's moving. This is your moment. Anybody else? All right. Well, praise the Lord. The Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for that and for all of the things that you're doing in all of our life. Now, listen, stand up. We're going to applaud the Lord one more time as we celebrate what he did. This. Come on, give him a big applause. Come on, louder and louder and louder. He deserves praise. Bless the Lord. We thank the Lord for it. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.